It's not a vote of confidence in ABC, and it's the right time for Iger to sell. If he can get $8 billion for ABC, I think he's going to take it. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, July 24th. Today on Media Monday, John Kelly and I discuss what Disney assets Bob Iger might sell if he's in fire sale mode, and what those various media brands like FX or ABC might fetch on the market. And we ask whether Donald Trump might skip that first Republican debate in August on Fox News, and how much his absence would impact TV ratings and the ability of his GOP rivals to break through. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Happy Monday, everybody. If it's Monday, it's Media Monday. Welcome to the powers that be. I'm joined by the boss man, John Kelly. John, how are you, buddy? How are the dog days of summer out there in New Jersey? You know, we're, we're taking it a day at a time here, man, but um, very excited for the trade deadline coming up. Uh, would love to hear your prediction on what you think is going to happen to show. Hey, keep it quick because people hate this part of the show and then I'll keep my version very quick, too. Let's just skip it. I, I feel like I don't even know that much about baseball other than the Cincinnati Reds, but I will celebrate the sale, finally, of the Washington Commanders uh, mm. away from Dan Snyder uh, into the hands of Josh Harris, who I found out yesterday is a Chevy Chase native, grew up going yep. to RFK, so that gives me some hope for that franchise and hope they change the team name one more time, just one more time. The Chevy Chase thing, by the way, uh, mattered, I think, in, in, in the room, actually. That was, uh, I think, that having a local boy by the team was was really, really important uh, after all the ways that your boy Dan Snyder just fucked everything up for 20 years. So good for Josh. Uh, six and change. Nice deal. Very nice deal. Uh, Dan Snyder made about $5 billion off that one. I want to start with another uh, very rich person. That would be Bob Iger. Uh, obviously, he made a lot of news in a, a freewheeling CNBC interview in Sun Valley week ago about, a little more than a week ago. Uh, Dylan Byers was up there for us getting all the gossip. One thing he did float was possibly selling ABC. And this came amid a lot of gossip that, you know, now that he's back in charge at Disney, he might sell off a bunch of assets. Uh, he said in that CNBC interview that probably wouldn't sell ESPN, but he's looking for, quote, strategic partners to help branch the product out. Our Matt Bellany went through all of Disney's assets and kind of broke out what price some of these things would sell for. ABC, FX, Nat Geo. Walk me through what he thinks some of these things would actually go for on the market if Iger decides to do a fire sale. Well, one of the things that's so interesting now about this media moment, and, and it's contextualized in part by the, uh, I think, by the striking actors and the striking writers, is that the media titans, the, the Igers and Zazes, who are of a certain age now, Igers in the 70s, as in the 60s, they're both saying, whether they are negotiating or not, that their businesses 
are struggling and that they can't afford to maintain these debt loads. Iger said quite explicitly that this is a bad time for a strike, which obviously um, was an unpopular thing to say. But what they're saying very clearly is that they are, they're sellers. They're winking. Iger said it more explicitly than ever. You know, I think Zaz, when he got that job, came in, killed CNN Plus, talked about the three billion synergies, spiked the Catwoman movie like it's the era of belt tightening. So Matt did an amazing job looking at a number of the the kind of non-core Disney assets, some of the things Iger uh, mentioned, some of the things that, that he didn't, but that were part of the the Murdoch $71 billion deal, you know, Iger made uh, to buy the non-toxic parts of the Murdoch empire, the 21st century asset, a deal which he was forced to bid up from Brian Roberts and hasn't aged well. So, mm-hmm. you know, usually we, we crib Dylan's reporting here, but let's crib Matt's. <laughs> Iger mentioned that he was he was looking for a strategic partner for Disney, which probably means someone to take a, a majority controlling stake and maybe spin it off as, a, as its own public entity one way or another. Bill, uh, in his reporting last week, valued it at 30 to 50. Matt has it at 30 to 45 based on the bankers he's talking to. And he has ABC at around $7.9 billion. A&E Networks, which is our, our also a um, co-ownership position with Hearst, like ESPN, at 6.8. FX, 4.5. Now, remember, FX was one of the treasures, uh, allegedly, mm-hmm. in the uh, in the Murdoch deal. And it, it hasn't. there aren't enough bears to to keep Hulu afloat with, uh, with Netflix. And then... Their local stations, $4 billion, Nat Geo, 3.5, that's also a co-sharing agreement, and then Freeform, which I've never understood what Freeform is, a billion five. And I think there are others, too, that you could probably um, uh, attribute value to. I've actually I've heard about um, one or two others that, that might be out there in Soto Vacha conversation. But when I read this, I just think this is precisely the, the cash that Disney needs. It's got $38 billion in debt if it can find a way to spin off ESPN with debt, sell Disney, you know, unfortunately, to an Apollo of the world who will probably right-size it and figure out what to do with FX, which is also valuable, although they may actually, you know, they, they may decide they want to keep that in-house. You're talking about halving your debt right there. And it is poetic on some level. You know, I spent the first tenure of his Disney career as the master M&A builder, yep. and he is signaling that he's going to spend the last maybe four-year part of his career as the unwinder and the M&A seller. And so it goes, my man. That is, uh, that's how this era is going to end. You mentioned FX and Hulu in there. Um, as someone who's watching The Bear and has watched a million FX shows over the years, um, remind the audience like what ownership stake Disney has in Hulu. And do you have any thoughts on where the future of Hulu plays into Iger's vision? Good, good question. You're right. Disney owns two-thirds of it. They're probably going, they've signaled that they're probably going to buy the other third, which would cost nine or $10 billion. You know, they have the cash in their balance sheet to do that. They have more than $10 billion, but they don't want to drive up their debt from 38 billion to 48 billion, which is, you know, WBD territory. And, uh, and it's not what the market wants. So they're going to have to sell to buy. Uh, it actually, um, which is not an unusual situation. Usually huh. most financings are the antecedents of, you know, future financings. I, I was just thinking about this the other day in our, again, you know, like red alert, uh, sports metaphor time, Ted Leonsis, you know, is, is selling out a stake of of his monumental sports group, which owns the Capitals and the and the Wizards, which I can't believe haven't been relegated out of the NBA yet, because he wants to buy the Nationals. Like that's how the world works, unless you're Jeff Bezos. So it's smart business. And what Disney and Zaz have said all along is they have to spend to buy the assets and to find customers where they are. But to get there, they have to spend things. And mm-hmm. 
when I heard Iger talk about ABC, which, you know, is, is probably sentimental to him for all kinds of reasons, it made me think of Jeff Fuchs spinning off the Time Inc. assets when he oh. knew at some point that Time Warner wasn't going to be big enough. This is like a, almost a decade ago at this point. And with a brave face said, okay, magazine division that's been floating along here uh, due to the proceeds from all our other, you know, CNN, HBO, et cetera, et cetera, other lines of business. Politely, you're on your own, guys. You're going to do great. And everyone just knew it was the kiss of death, you know, <laughs> uh, put in a brave face. And, you know, now these things are all like some sort of cubicle inside of a dot dash somewhere. So it's not a vote of confidence in ABC. And it's the right time for Iger himself. He can get $8 billion for, for ABC. I think he's going to take it. And I think that these sales are going to define the market for CNN, which I have to imagine will be on the block a year from now if, if they aren't already privately having those conversations. Yeah, or at least right after the presidential election. John, I want to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit about Republican conservative media and whether Donald Trump might actually skip this first GOP debate. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic, try Gift Mode on Etsy now. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. the powers that be everybody john tina Wynn has what i think is the most authoritative piece up on puck right now about ron DeSantis and his summer of discontent tina's you know had and has always had great sources in sort of a, a corner of conservative politics that a lot of other political reporters don't necessarily and she sort of she wrote a great profile of, of Casey DeSantis many months ago that everyone should go back and read. And she basically sort of went through how, not just how DeSantis is going to like reset the campaign by going to pizza ranches in Iowa and like dropping the rope line and talking less about Florida, but, but really how Ron and Casey DeSantis and their personalities 
are matched or unmatched for this moment and how to run a team and all this stuff. Anyway, go read the piece. But one of the crucial things for DeSantis, and I wrote about this too a couple weeks ago, is this first debate in Milwaukee coming up in August. And that's when most people, including most Republican voters, not the ones in Iowa and New Hampshire, not the media, are going to be tuning into these people and seeing Donald Trump and the seven dwarves. DeSantis right now, if we're using the metaphor as either uh, grumpy or dopey uh, of the dwarves. Um, <laughs> but a big question is, will Donald Trump even show up? Because depending on the polls, he's got either like a 20 to 30 point lead, national versus early state. And he doesn't really need to uh, at the moment. Just a reminder for everybody, the first Republican debate back in 2015 in Cleveland, I was there in the audience, 24 million people tuned in. I think that even if Trump is at this debate, they won't reach those numbers. I think people are just consuming political news less and less. I might be wrong. But if Trump isn't there, it's almost certain they won't have 24 million viewers. So walk me through what you think Trump's calculus might be. Does he need this media exposure? Does he need to be on that debate stage? And if he isn't there... What does it mean for Ron DeSantis? I'm going to make you be a political pundit for a minute. Oh, boy. And I am not a, a political analyst. And I, like you, read that Gabe Sherman story in Vanity Fair, what used to be known as The Hive, um, about... Um, <laughs> uh, yes, it uh, did. It did, about the idea that Tucker Carlson on his new Twitter platform existence might, you know, try and counter-program the, the debate with Trump, which let me tell you, uh, as a political analyst, I'll give you these two cents. Don't do it. That seems petulant and JV. And if the numbers aren't astounding, it's just a recipe for um, for disaster, particularly for, for Tucker. But boy, I mean, we're getting up there, Peter. I, I can't think of a election, even like a midterm election, where there's just been less enthusiasm all around. And we keep seeing these battle scars for the end of linear, the, the secular decline of linear, as we always you know say around here. But I have a significant feeling that the the ratings for debate night in Milwaukee in about four weeks are going to be the next sign. This is not going to be Trump and, and Megyn Kelly having it out. Yeah, I don't think Trump will, will go. I think he wants to do this election on his terms. I, I think that he will find that he's going to be able to do that. I also think that he's older. He's lost a step. He doesn't want to be in prime time. And he just doesn't want to be with the, you know, his words, losers up there, you know, let, let them fight <laughs> it out to get to the to the next round, which, you know, is actually, uh, I think, politically smart because it defangs people like Chris Christie and reduces their value. You know, there, there are all these like sort of, um, uh, you know, red alert, another sports metaphor. But I feel like, you know, in the old days, you know, the, the Yankees used to acquire all these relief pitchers who would have like mediocre uh, ERAs, except that they could like completely silence like one Red Sox hitter, you know, like Manny Ramirez yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. And Christie's only value as a candidate is that people have heard of him and he could give Trump a lot of trouble on the debate stage. So what do you do if you're Trump or Susie Wiles advising him? Don't get on the debate stage. Make life easy. And especially if no one's watching it. Because that's the other element of, of uh, distress here for Trump is why would he want to take on the burden of being the ratings marquee himself? The Caitlin Collins thing did well contextualized for CNN in 2023, but those numbers weren't very good. Why would he want to take that chance again? So I think that we are going to see the the low enthusiasm for this election uh, played out on that stage in, in Milwaukee. And uh, I could be wrong, but I, I feel pretty confidently about that. Yeah, I could be wrong too, but it's just like what's the what's the line from mean girls back in the day stop trying to make fetch happen like if sometimes i feel like i read political reporters and political coverage of this primary 
and they're trying to make it exciting and they're trying to make it happen and they're trying to make it like you know just they're all this daily drama and just ah, people just don't really care that much like people really don't like politics right now it's been that way since trump left office so they didn't like it during those years either but they at least felt like there was some existential stakes to politics and it meant you had to tune in and had to follow stuff and like NBC News like wrote a piece last week about a DeSantis campaign reset and the language that it was using and the anonymous sourcing it was using. It was like it, it reminded me of like the way that reporters covered like the Hillary Obama race back in like 2008. It was just like very inside baseball gossip. But it's about Ron DeSantis <laughs> and like even DeSantis interview with like Jake Tapper was like boring. And it's not because mm-hmm. of Jake. It's just because it was just like. DeSantis is kind of boring. He doesn't electrify people. And I don't know. It's just, I don't think there's going to be the mass tune in. Most human beings don't know who Doug Burgum and Tim Scott are. And, you know, all of us are going to watch, but I agree with you. And time spent with television has dropped significantly, not just over the last two years, but I I mean, like it's, if you look at charts, it's amazing over the last 10 years, like go back and look at 2015 when those big Republican debates were happening. People were spending a lot more time with TV than digital and Digital has totally just like surpassed TV in in the intervening years. So another point on that CNN interview that Ron DeSantis did is just the fact that he did an interview with CNN. This is a person who has made his bones, at least nationally, certainly in Florida, on attacking the elite media and the know-it-alls and just doing friendly interviews with Fox. He's sort of curated his own little media ecosystem with digital creators in Florida who like defend him on social media all the time, but he hasn't really stepped into the quote unquote mainstream media uh, arena until this week, which signals in itself a little bit of a campaign reset. Like his campaign has been about COVID, which is by the way, a topic most people don't care about anymore as much as they did. And as much as it still provokes debate, it's just not top of mind for people. Uh, But also things like DEI and ESG and the woke mind virus and just shit that like Donald Trump doesn't even say on stage because he knows that normies don't know what that is. Uh, Like he's going in on Bud Light (laughs) right now over there, like trans marketing campaign. People don't give a shit about this stuff. And so I'm curious, what do you think he has to gain by doing mainstream media? Because it is a question too. Like it's still a Republican primary. I was listening to Pod Save America the other day and those guys were saying they thought DeSantis was using the Jake interview to provoke a fight that he could then <laughs> sort of like create, like, like chop up into little digital bits and distribute on online. Uh, that didn't happen, you know, it, and, and like, by the way, his body language, when I watched it, he didn't look like scared is the wrong word, but he looked a little like nervous and he didn't look as confident yeah. as he usually does in, in conservative settings. He is an awkward dude. You know, again, this is not political advice, but politicians are usually even even governors who are chief executives of their state or whatever are usually terrible managers right i think people who come up in politics are usually micromanagers and obsessives and i think we've seen firsthand what a ineffective manager the desanti are <laughs> they raised a meaningful amount of money but only trusted people in their inner circle in tallahassee and i will tell you if you want to rely on the talent pool of tallahassee i don't think you're going to be able to to operate apple computer you know or, or netflix or microsoft and they also decided to, to basically vertically integrate a campaign for reasons i could not for the life of me understand you know I, I get that they don't want to be taken advantage by all these vulture consultants from washington who, who want to you know put their money to work but 
they wasted a lot of money doing this. And as one wise investor once told me, you want OPEX, not CAPEX. And that means don't build your own stuff because you're creating something that's going to go away, right? It's an infrastructure that's going to go away. Ron DeSantis isn't going to run 40 presidential campaigns in his lifetime. Uh-huh. He uh-huh. should be focusing on operating expenses, not the much more expensive cost of, of bringing something in-house. So I uh, chalked all this up to, a, you know, not listening to consultants, um, to having terrible advice, and then being confronted with, with a huge bill that, frankly, he cannot pay. Uh, so they've got to go through the complicated motions of raising more money, creating enthusiasm when it doesn't exist. And to do that, they have to stop getting, in your great phrase, very online. They have to be in touch on mainstream media. And we know this. It's, it's crazy, but it's true. Presidential elections, like, you know, many local elections, TV media and radio media really, really works. It really uh, makes a difference. And DeSantis was hoping that 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 he was, you know, he was the Obama of his time by by focusing yeah. on the new platforms of Ben Shapiro, like you know, to, to the power of eleven, right? All, all these all these weird dark my pillow corners of the internet. But it turns out that there's a playbook, as they like to say, and and uh, he's he's coming around to it by hook or by crook. Yeah, I texted a, a Trump person the other day. Uh, you know, when this all these stories started breaking about DeSantis's campaign reset and this person texted back. The problem is they can't fire their candidate. <laughs> and yes, like, look, they're right. going to say that it's Trump campaign. But like Peter's two rules for living when it comes to politics. OK, one is and some of these are just old saws. One of them is campaigns are about the future, not the past. And like DeSantis can't really articulate He's done a lot of stuff in the conservative arena and he can make an argument that he can maybe get stuff done in a way Trump can't. But like he still hasn't articulated the forward looking message for this country. And even in a Republican primary, I do think you need that. The other corollary to that is you need a message like Trump had a message. Make America great again. Obama had a message. Hope and change like Reagan, H.W. Bush, like whatever. They all had a Mm -hmm. message. It's so simple. Like, think back to Kamala Harris and, like, everyone else in 2019 who failed in their primary. Why are you running? Like, write it down, pin it on a wall, look at it every morning. What is your reason for being every day? And, like, DeSantis has all of these little discrete battles and flame wars he's had with the left, but there's no overarching reason for being uh, for people who are just meeting him in the first place. And if you, you know, have a charisma deficit like he does, like you need something to make up for that. And it's like, I just, I don't see it yet. And maybe that will come through in the debate. Maybe they'll develop that in that, in this campaign reset. Um, but he needs to sort of articulate to people in a very bumper sticker manner. Why DeSantis? And like, he hasn't done that yet. That's my political punditry for the day. Um, John, have a great week, buddy. All right, you too, man. I'll see you in the Slack. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.